This episode of Science Moab was made possible by a STEM action grant from the Society for Science. This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina Young, and today we're talking about traditional foods on the plateau, specifically exploring the peach trees found in the Four Corners region and the work going on to preserve them. Hi, I'm Reagan white Salusi. I am Haftane. My clans, we go by four clans when we introduce ourselves. So my first clan is uh, Nakai Dene, which means the Mexican clan. It's also known as the Wandering People's Clan. My second clan is Senjakini, which means I was born for Senjakini. That's my father's clan. And that's the Honeycomb Clan or the Cliff Dwelling People's Clan. My mother's paternal grandfather is Bilagana. That means Anglo or white. It's a descriptive name of a color. And then my last clan is Totochitni, which is the Bitterwater clan. And that's my father's paternal grandfather's clan. Okay, I wanted to start by hearing about what got you interested in traditional foods. So I started I started with the, the interest going to school, getting an education in agriculture, my previous education or knowledge base of growing plants was uh, a home garden and that didn't necessarily encompass traditional food crops or heirloom crops. And so when I started going to school, I focused on the plant science, specifically in horticulture and cropping systems as an emphasis in my program. And from there, I had the interest of learning more about uh, the fruit trees that my father had talked to me about. Before I began my my program, I got a lot of experience and passion just continued to grow from there, all because of a beginning interest of, of thinking, how am I going to be able to reestablish agriculture in our tr- native communities and also reestablishing the traditional food crops, specifically looking at the peaches as, as the beginning food crop that I would want to identify, locate, and and bring back to the communities. Yeah, I'd, I'm excited to get into speaking about the peaches specifically, but I w- was curious more broadly, what are some of the traditional foods that are in this area? So there's there's quite a bit, actually. There's walnuts, plums, grapes, apricots, apples. I've heard of pears as well. I've also heard of pecans in this area, and lots of these food crops have been growing in this area for hundreds of years. Peaches have been more recognized as being introduced because the the trailing pathways or the introduction isn't as clear in historical documents all the way back to early uh, Spaniard journals. And so there's there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding on that either, but there's there's high potential that they definitely can be adapted and potentially native to this area as well, as a lot of my research has alluded or left open-ended to leave as discussion. That's a lot of the fruit crops in general. Then we get into the vegetable crops. So we have melons. Watermelons are very common. There's a white-fleshed watermelon that is not very recognized. It's very small and can store very well. There's lots of squash. Winter squash is very common in what we grow as an heirloom crop. Uh, Corn. There's so many different types of corn. There's popcorns, dent corns. Wheat corn is actually less common in our traditional diet, but we we definitely used a lot of dent corn for flour, and there's all sorts of colors 
of the dent corn as well as the popcorns as well. There's also different beans. So there's there's dry beans, lots of different dry beans. There's lima beans. It's so expanding of the variety of food that we have. There's wild onions that we would harvest in the surrounding areas. Then there's nuts like pine nuts. Our diet just continues to expand and grow. There's chilies that we would grow that we've been able to find when we travel to Hopi area or such. And you know, many tribes have their own different types of crops, but really we're looking at a full diet of availability and what we can just grow and also what's what can be commonly found and harvested off the land at the same time. Well, tell me about peaches. Tell me about why you have been drawn to working specifically with the with peaches in this region. So not understanding completely the the importance of the tree when I started the research has has kind of been a curiosity that spread in my mind as to remembering some of the things that my dad would talk about when he first brought up that we had peaches and that we grew peaches and he remembered what they tasted like. I was so intrigued in my young life at that time to think, what what is this? Like, does it taste like the peaches in the grocery store? You know, I had a lot of curiosity as a lot of people that don't know they exist. The first time that he took me to Shanto, he showed me around the area where they had their farms where his, his dad and mom planted their crops, had their garden. The fruit trees were in the back alongside the, the cliff area where this canyon wall was. And when we go there, the only thing that's, that's there now and in existence is Russian olive trees. And everything else is barren. And our family does not necessarily have the, the grazing rights or the property rights to, to utilize that land. We now have another distant cousin that's utilizing the land and and they've been using it for, for livestock grazing as pasture land. So very different from what it was. And to see that not a single one of those trees were in existence. And even speaking with people in the community as I started to search and look for the peach trees themselves, a lot of them said, well, I remember there were trees here, but they're not there anymore. Or I remember my grandma and grandpa growing and having an orchard here and since they passed on 20, 30 years ago, the trees have since died. And so it just keeps adding up, adding up, adding up. And I start looking for literature to see what information, historical information there is on the fruit trees grown in the Southwest regions with Native American tribes and came to find a recently published document produced for the Hopi Nation where they had large and vast orchards as well by hundreds in orchards uh, across their their mesa spans and all the villages that they have in that publication they mentioned that of the original orchard quantity from the 80s and even earlier that only less than two percent of the orchards or the fruit trees remained and this was this was published back in around 2012, I'm going to estimate. And so I started using it in my early research. And, you know, this is an immediate and timely project. So my interest grew extremely from that point, And it became an adventure to be able to not just find the fruit trees, but to be able to identify myself, be able to understand my family history, where I come from, where my ancestors roamed and where they rode their horses, where they 
you know, grazed their sheep, how they rotated their crops across the land. And a lot of these things we don't practice anymore. We don't discuss very often anymore. A lot of our young individuals, including myself, are absent to the thought of how the natural ways of, of caring for the land, rotating the land, and living off the land, how that was with our ancestors. I'm curious, you know, a little bit more about the peach trees themselves. Like, what do those peaches taste like? And also, here in Moab, I think of the fruit trees that I'm struggling to grow in my soil and all of the amendments, and all these things that I'm trying to do to, you know, give them a chance to survive. And I'd love to hear more, too, about, you know, the trees themselves and how they're able to survive in what we know are pretty nutrient-poor soils here in the southwest region. Yeah, um, so so these peaches, I'll, I'll tell you, I've, I've had a variety of them now for the first year this past fall, where I've been able to taste the fruit off of all the seeds that I've been able to collect in the different regions. So I have fruit from Hopi, I have fruit from Canyon de Shea, I have fruit from Navajo Mountain. And with those seeds, as they've, as they've grown and matured, the prodigy that's come from them finally receiving the fruit after eight years of research, almost nine years of research, the taste of them varies. I feel like the the yellow flesh peaches have more flavor, but since I've been doing the study, more often than not, I'm, I'm told they're more commonly found as white flesh peaches. The flavor from those, as far as Canyon de Chez peaches, they have a musk melon taste or they have a tart peel, so it's like a sweet tart blend of a flavor. And the sweetness is, it may not be very high, but but it's there and you can taste it. It tastes very good. It's, it's a very natural flavor. With the peaches that have grown in Navajo Mountain, oddly enough, the, the seed pool that I collected when I received seeds from the orchards over in that area, all of the prodigy have been yellow flesh peaches. They have a full peach flavor, similar to what you find in the grocery store. Some are very sweet and juicy. Some can have a little bit more of a mealy texture, which is not necessarily appealing, but they have they still have a good taste about them. Similar thing, their skin might be slightly astringent, might be slightly tart, <laughs> and they're not very colorful. They're, they don't look like that full red, vibrant color of what you're looking for when you go to the grocery store and you buy a peach. Some of them can be actually white or lighter fleshed. Some of them can have like a green underside with like a light pink blush on the top. So very subtle coloring. One tree that uh, that I remember from Hopi mo- first and foremost, and it's one of my favorites that I've collected. It has a uh, like a cinnamon or a spice flavor to it. And it's a yellow fleshed peach. And all of these are very small, the size of an apricot. They're freestone peaches, so they're easy to separate. So that's awesome to know what they taste like. It's so interesting to hear the varieties from the different places. And then, you know, with with the peaches that are growing in these different places that you described, like Canyon de Chez, like Navajo Mountain, how are they surviving, especially the ones like are they are they being tended? How do they get established in, you know, these nutrient poor areas? What are some of the practices that have allowed the peaches to survive? So the, the peaches are more drought tolerant. We've studied this in a controlled experiment setting to verify that. Traditionally, they have been planted in these sites where they would be collecting only annual precip. 
and the, any water that would run off from mesa tops or canyon walls would ideally flood into these orchard spaces. And the same thing took place with the garden spaces as well. As oftentimes, the gardens were planted around the orchards at the same time. As I worked with each tribe, so I worked with Hopi, Zuni, and Navajo nations to do this research, each tribe had unique practices within their own still, though they still practice a, a sense of uh, allowing the trees to be more drought tolerant, which allows them to be more adapted to the land. We have a lot of clay soils in the area, and they seem to be readily adaptable to that. The harsher temperature changes on a daily basis is also something that they are readily adaptable to. So they're just a very hardy tree, and, and peach wood itself is a very hard wood. The elders that traditionally cared for them mentioned that they never irrigated them ever a day in their lives, maybe just to get them established at the very beginning. But after that, it's it's been complete trust on what what Heavenly Father was going to offer for any given season. And they produced and they became abundant, bountiful food resource every year that as long as there wasn't a late frost that they would produce. Another thing that I want to add is where these trees have been planted, they're, they're kind of located in, in closed off areas or areas where the wind is not maybe not so harsh. They have a lot of radiating heat coming off of the canyon walls or the mesa side walls where they're planted in. And so that kind of helps give a buffer of the air temperature to help prevent frost occurrences killing all the flowers. So it's, it's kind of amazing to know how our ancestors knew how to plant these trees the best places to plant them, and that they would be okay in these areas so much that even if they're not being cared for for decades, that there's still some trees that exist there without any assistance, without any care, without any added watering. Even when we're, when we're going through a drought throughout the entire nation, you know, annual precipitation is greatly reduced in a lot of our areas, and some of these trees are still thriving in some of these spaces though you have to find them. It's incredible. So, you know, you mentioned about 2% of these trees remain on the landscape. And so tell me about your research. You said you're going around collecting, you know, you went around collecting um, seeds. Are you propagating these species and trying to grow them out? What's the direction that you're taking your research in? It turned out that doing this research actually gave me the opportunity to start having the support in searching and finding for these trees, for the seed sources. Part of those discussions is to identify any of their, like if they're genetically unique. So we did genetic studies. And oftentimes we would have conversations together, planning the direction that this would go, also looking at the history. We started to think, well, let's look at how these are managed. Let's talk to the elders. Let's, you know, document their stories, preserve that history. That's a big piece in what's being lost in our communities right now. Is it's really it's really interesting to see that as we started studying this tree, we started to look at how we preserve all of this history in the midst of this, and that the research and the pathways through this would be able to to start preserving that history and start being a, a resource to give back. 
We also wanted to look at the scientific ways of, of the management practices that the elders would talk to us about and coordinate that within each area that they were growing. So we didn't cut down any live trees. There was probably only a couple of trees that we were allowed to do, take live cores of because of the sensitivity that we would be damaging the tree or potentially leaving an open wound for pest problems to come in. And so we were we were very sensitive about that. So a lot of the dendrochronology work that we did do was based off of dead tree samples that we also scouted out and found in old orchards and took samples of to be able to assess and look at. And within each community, we actually correlated that with what the elders mentioned in their practices. We could see that in the tree ring growth. We weren't able to do any cross-dating because when you have any any additional irrigation to it, it does mess up the ring cycle. So you can't necessarily cross-date that with the time frame that it lived. We can only estimate that. And not having enough samples because a lot of the trees that did exist or that passed on in orchards, some of that wood is completely gone. We can't find any remains of it. So we're lucky to find what we actually did find. The last thing that we did was do a nutrient study, a full FDA food label nutritional analysis on the peaches and we actually compared them to the uh, USDA standard food nutrition label for fresh peaches. We found out that they're higher in calcium, they have more fiber, a few other things, they're, they're higher in fats uh, and, and calories. Uh, and there was a few things that weren't change so sugar wasn't very different potassium wasn't very different but we start seeing that these are a little bit more of a benefit to to the diet as what they offer those are pretty much the the studies that we were able to collect and go through what do you hope to see as the future of these traditional foods in this region so i'm hoping with all of the genetic work that we've done that now that we've identified some of this and and they are actually uh, identified to be unique to not only just a tribe, but they are uniquely genetically inbred within their own communities. That's one benefit that we've seen. So because of that, we want to try and keep their purity. We want to try and keep that genetic resource alive and thriving and not dilute it. We have seen some of the seeds that we've collected have been cross-pollinated with modern cultivars, and we can see that in their genetic makeup. So to make sure that they're pure, also to make it abundant, and a widely or widely spread available food resource in our communities again like they once were is of great interest at this moment in time as it's a perennial crop it takes time so i have trees in north logan right now and as people ask me well can we see these trees can we see the fruit and i tell them well we'll have to go to north logan because i do want to protect the growers that are that currently still have them they are in their elder age and this is their way of living. This is what they live off of. So protecting them and their personal life is is also a part of this process, protecting the outsourcing of this tree. So looking at legal permissions for distribution and what that would look like in respect to our people, the growers, our ancestors that have grown them, like my grandfather, and then also making sure that as they're distributed, that they're used in an appropriate manner that is culturally respectful to each and every one of our communities. So it's, it's, uh, it's a long process to be able to say, eventually down the road, we will have orchard spaces that would be offered as a, a way of educating for our youth, for community gatherings, to be able to rejoin the community together and say, it's time to harvest, 
it's time to care for the orchard, having, having days where we can offer and provide education. And then eventually at the end of the season, when they're producing fruit, give back that seed to them and give them the resources and the information that says, this is how your elders said to grow it and to be able to share that. So hopefully in time, we'll be able to have it grown in vast amounts in our communities again, but still having spaces where they're isolated and they remain pure outside of any modern cultivars that are being introduced. And we can control the spread of the seeds in this way. Well, Reagan, thank you so much for sharing all of this information and for your time. And I'll be so excited to follow up and learn more as your work continues about these traditional foods and especially about the peaches. Thank you. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.